Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending April 6. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Michael Harden serves some answers in the heated debate around hot cross buns. And Alexandra Collier tells us more about her newly published memoir, Inconceivable. Dan Salmon takes us through his favourite finds in the National Library's Trove archive. Emma Gray discussing the RBA's rate pause and pounding the pavement. What's your pedestrian style? Laura Pietrobon reviews the new Australian novel Funny Ethnics. Clowning superstar Dr Brown sells us on the significance of being still. But we start the week with the next chapter in Nat's whiteboard saga. Triple R. There's a whiteboard in my life. It's a prop. <laughs> I use it for comedy. Uh, so I, I take it with me on. Yeah, we travel together a lot, me and this white for, whiteboard. I've lamented about it on air, about its inconvenient size. And I feel like that there is yeah, a real gap in the market because I specifically I need one with an easel on the bottom. I need it to be kind of big enough. Um, but there is just limited whiteboards out there um, that meet that requirement, which mm. I found really shocking in 2023. I thought that we would, you know, be further down the path of portable whiteboards. Or even rolling up a whiteboard like a poster maybe. Yes, I thought about that and there were some excellent suggestions that listeners um, wrote in. The only issue with the the rolling one is that often, like I did a gig with the whiteboard this weekend and it, that means I rely on a surface being able to um, – put the the rolly whiteboard out onto a wall and it's not you can't always rely on that Got like it. there was a curtain this weekend i was just going to say as a very small side note just yeah. hearing you speak so eloquently and beautifully about your whiteboard mm. it makes me think that there's a market for a, a sort of children's illustrated book with nat uh, and her whiteboard yeah. we were talking to russ knight last week about his <laughs> excursions into this field and i feel like i'm really captivated by your relationship with the whiteboard what my neighbors must think as they <laughs> see me trek off with this whiteboard like intermittently throughout the week or on weekends I, yeah i wonder what they think i do with it <laughs> um it was actually funny because I, I do feel like it is like we're in this really <laughs> Not relationship, but my friend just got a dog recently and she was talking about how wonderful it is taking on a pet but also the responsibility that comes with that. I'm not even joking. Mm. In my mind I thought, oh, I can kind of relate. That's how I feel about my whiteboard. (laughs) It's a beautiful (laughs) relationship. Yeah, but then I continued to interrogate that and there are very – no, there are no parallels. Like I don't need to water it. I don't need to feed it. But, yeah, I do feel like it is – this responsibility is kind of the main – and a bit of a weight is is the main kind of feeling I have when I think about this whiteboard. But we, I had a gig um, this weekend, so we got on a tram. It was a bit of a long journey. You Me- and the whiteboard are away. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> I know we are. We're away. Me and the the the, the whiteboard um, trekked off, and um, yeah, this is kind of yeah a bit of a a milestone in our journey because, yeah, I was sitting there prepping for the gig and then out of nowhere ticket inspectors approached me and were like, um, yeah, can we see your Mikey? Have you touched on? Um, I'm definitely known for my fear evading and I'm not above um, running um, on ticket inspectors. But in this instance I hadn't touched on 
and I was like, and I had the whiteboard and it's like jutting out into like the aisle of the tram and I was like, how am I going to play this? You know, am I just going to have to like cop it on the chin? Mm. And I just looked to the ticket inspector and I was like, oh, I kind of shrugged. I was like, oh, sorry, I, I just got on, you know, with the whiteboard and just kind of shrugged and kind of gestured to it. And was like, oh, I was just, I was going to touch on, but then I couldn't get past it because of the size and everything. And yeah, they looked at me and after what felt like an eternity, they're like, all right, that's okay. Just where are you getting off? I'm like, oh, oh the next stop. And um, I was like, yeah, thanks so much. So I feel like that was, yeah, a huge moment for me and the whiteboard, like it stopped becoming such a like a burden, but I feel like we became more of a double act yeah, in that this moment. Is it. Total partners in crime. Yeah, absolutely. Like, <laughs> quite literally, <laughs> yes. Um, and it was really affirming as well to have like the ticket inspector. That were really lovely. I really appreciate it. Young girl just doing her job. Um, it, to her, to to kind of just look at it, assess the situation and realise what in like inconvenience, <laughs> mm. you know, I'm dealing with. So, yeah, that was a big moment. I mean, it so. seems to me that you were taken pity upon. Yeah. And that while there was a benefit on that day, yeah, it doesn't redeem the relationship between you and the whiteboard. Not entirely, but I just feel like that it is a bit of a turning point, a bit yeah. of a shift and my attitude towards the whiteboard, I almost felt like a sense of guilt in that moment coming on air, you know, you know, talking crap about it, yeah. I need a better size wine. And I was like, well, this is, you know, we're in this together. But exactly. today <laughs> it did pay its way yeah, this week. Yeah, it did. But Because, um, I mean, I was thinking – because there were a few ways it could have gone, I yeah. suppose. Like you could use the whiteboard to try and like give a lecture to, to yeah. the ticket inspectors about the authoritarian damages of strict liability in this culture. Yeah. Quite so. I love that. Mm. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I should probably – maybe I could get um, some help from you. <laughs> no, that. And, and drafting that up so I've got that ready to roll. Yeah. And, yeah, diversify my tactics <laughs> <laughs> on fair evading. Really get some more double-act material going. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Author and professional bun taster Michael Harden joins us for his resident hot takes. Morning, Michael. Morning. I'm going to put bun taster on my next business card. <laughs> but it's apt this morning, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Because I thought that, you know, given given the where we are in the year, it's uh, time to a good time to talk about hot cross buns, which um, probably just saying that word has triggered lots of people because it's sort of like it does seem to be a very controversial topic. We're always arguing about should they be appearing on Boxing Day? Mm. You know, should there be orange peel and you know too many, too many things, too many additions, too many different things? The so, correspondents um, face such a barrage of, of criticism. They, they do, they do. It's really amazing. It's sort of like people seem to get very emotional about them, and it's mm. sort of like mm. I guess it's sort of you know it is part of the history. They've always been kind of controversial. That sort of like in terms of Christian terms, they sort of started um, in the 14th century. There was a monk that sort of first put crosses on bust buns on Good Friday and fed the peasants, and then. 
it became very political in Elizabethan times when the Catholic Church and the Church of England split and, and Queen Elizabeth um, forbade them being um, made any time other than Christmas and Easter because otherwise that was sort of considered a Catholic thing. So they were banned for a while, which sent them underground. And, um, you know, there's all those sort of things. But, you know, let's let's sort of get to the real, <laughs> the real controversies. And like, you know, and I think we're sort of like, you know, I think we can point the finger firmly at Coles yeah. because of some of the abominations that they do. I sort of feel like there's like a Trump level of trolling with Coles because it's like they're always like, here's a Vegemite hot cross <laughs> bun. And everybody goes, oh, my God. And, you know, then and like, you know, and they sort of bring this kind of thing. And their latest one is like a, they're doing a bun with like a burger sauce and pickles and stuff what? and calling it a hot cross burger sauce bun or something. And it's like, come on. Yeah. It's not a hot cross bun. And you wonder it, about the, the good faith intentions of these products, whether or not they're yeah. for culinary purposes. I'm not or sure whether I really wonder. <laughs> I think that I kind of think that there's sort of. Because, and you know, you can kind of get it because it's like um, both Coles and Woolworths, like the figures that I can get from them, they're selling between Boxing Day and Easter mm. around about 70 million buns each. So they're kind of like, you know, you can tell that they want to sort of like, you know, they can you can put a cross on anything, Mm -hmm. you know, hot cross carrot, you know, hot (laughs) cross. But and they are and like, you know, there's so many different versions like you said, there's bagels and donuts and ice cream and, you know, all those sort of things. I kind of um, I have to say I'm a bit of a traditionalist. Mm -hmm. I sort of, and I also like the idea of them being limited in sales just because it sort of makes it like a, 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 it designates the time of year and you can sort of get them only it's like you know being able to get cherries or something Mm. you know it's like they're special because they're only there for a little time and I really like that kind of way and I'm also quite a traditionalist when it comes to the buns as well like I'm not even like you know Every baker, I think, in Melbourne is doing something and there's, you know, you can get them spelt flour and wholemeal and, you know, it's sort of like, and there's a lot of people that are sort of adding bits and pieces like cranberries and chocolate and those sort of things. We'll get back to chocolate in a minute. Mm. But it's sort of the basic recipe, yeast, flour, sugar, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, allspice, a couple of eggs, some, you know, and then some dried fruit, currants and everything. That's their, They're all there sort of for a reason. I like the ritual of it because so they, you know, with the, um, you know, the cross, obviously, mm-hmm. um, which is representing the crucifixion, except they've found crossed buns in the ruins of a bakery in Pompeii and they believe that the cross represent the four phases of the moon and it was like taken on by Christians um, and sort of that was about crucifixion. Mm. So, you know, that's can, one Can I ask thing. if the cross was properly faithful to crucifix then the longitude and the latitude of the lines mm. would be different? Yes, yeah, The horizontal exactly. line will be pushed exactly. up. So it's sort of like phases of the moon <laughs> yeah. seems to be the more accurate mm. kind of description. But, you know, the thing, the spices in the, in the barn are supposed to symbolise the spices that we use to embalm the body of Christ after he'd come down from the cross. Mm. The orange peel is in there to symbolise the bitterness of Christ's death. So, you know, that's kind of like, you know, Christianity loves a bit of sort of eating flesh. How dramatic. Kind of yeah, it's a lot to take stuff. on with yeah, the yeah. cup of tea in the morning, I know, exactly. <laughs> well, even like, you know, kind of like you think like at Easter you're supposed to eat lamb mm. and this is sort of like, you know, the, it's the sacrificial lamb, you know, it's sort of like there's all this sort of, there's of a lot of death, of death imagery amongst, as you say, <laughs> the, uh, you know, taking over your cup of tea on Easter morning. Mm. So. And do you know if it's global? Is there a bit of a, a cross-bound black spot in this United States? The, they, there's more, like, it's obviously very Western um, and, you know, Western 
Christian, Judeo-Christian yeah. sort of stuff. But uh, but no, there, there are hot cross buns in America, but they're not to the kind of crazed levels of, you know, I think the English are pretty crazed. But I think Australians have lost their shit with this <laughs> more than anybody, you know, because sort of like I've never... It's sort of like every year... And, like, you know, there's hot cross bun gelato and there's hot cross bun chocolates and there's hot... You know, it's like people kind of, like... It's it it seems to represent my brother is an absolute fanatic. He's mm. got he sort of like he's he wants them all year round. We've had this argument before, and he's got them in the freezer. You know, it's kind of like we can't. He's the one that has to organise hot cross buns every Good Friday. You know, it's like you can't. He knows where to go. Yeah. I worked at Loafer for years, oh, and hands okay. down, like Easter was the busiest time. Yes. And the Soviet bread queues that yeah. form. You know, oh. it's kind of like lines around the block with people waiting for. And you know, of course. The the very great loon has got into the business of it as well. They're and not they're, doing hot cross bun no, cross-ons, are they? No, they're doing hot cross cruffins. Oh. So it's like they've got a it's like a croissant, like a cruffin is a croissant made in a muffin tin. So it's that and um and then filled, usually filled with something. So this time it's like a spiced custard and they've got the cross on the top and everything. So of course there'll be people losing their minds over that and probably there's probably people in sleeping bags outside of Loon right now. I just don't like <laughs> the word cruffin. I know, cruffin, please. I know, I know. Simon's I'm, out. I'm, Simon, this is some would love this. Oh I'm I applaud all forms of <laughs> experimentation and yeah. expression around the hot cross bun. So I, I'm enthusiastic, but I understand that my tolerance for deviation from the traditional recipe is very high yeah, compared to but, other people. But I think that's the beautiful thing about this is like I love a food that mm. can get people irritated. Mm. I think it's fantastic. You know, it's sort of like about the way that it's made or what goes into it or anything. It's sort of like it's a it's a great conversation and there's it's such low stakes. Mm. It's like eat it or donate it. You yeah. know, it's kind of like it basically it comes down to. So, you know, and you have those choices. And I'm kind of, I'm quite a fan of the sort of, I do like a mass produced hot cross bun, I have to say. How yeah. sure. like, you know, I, I don't kind mind of, it. I don't mind mixing it up a bit. I've got a, I've got a nephew that's sort of like, you know, he likes it. He likes a designer hot cross bun. So we kind of like, when we get together, we've got a little mm-hmm. bit of a smorgasbord of like, you know, you can get the kind of mass produced chain bakery ones mm-hmm. or you can get the you know you can get the ones that are sort of like you know but they're all fairly traditional buns we don't go into cruff and gelato donut bagel territory <laughs> god forbid um so what's the best preparation should they be served hot do we slice them open yeah this is another controversy yeah. again because there's a thing at the moment where there's people going you only should only microwave them what and it's like tell that to the 14th century yeah <laughs> So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, but, but people are going, no, that's the only way. They should be soft and gooey and everything. I'm, I don't like them toasted, like as in a toaster. I yeah. like them in an oven. So, yeah. you know, and I like, so you get, because I do like the crunchy bits on the outside. Same. And, I, and then they're soft on the inside. Like, you know, with a microwave, you're going to have the whole thing's going to be a bit mushy. And so with the oven, obviously that's a little bit more of a time-consuming process. Would it be at a particular setting, 120 or 180? Yeah, you probably wouldn't want to go much above like 140, 150 maybe, and sort of keep an eye on them because okay. it's like you don't mm. want to, you don't want a sort of hot cross bun that's going to break your teeth. And I feel like so. the more mass-produced ones cook faster. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because yeah, they've got more sugar, sugar in them, yeah. so it's going to burn quicker. Yeah. So, um, and but always butter. Oh, definitely. Always butter. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry, vegans, but you know you're really missing out on this one. Like, you know, you could put nut legs. I yeah, suppose. I was going to say nut legs is pretty good. It's, yeah, yeah, it's not a bad substitute, but yep. you know, when you're like side by side, um, yeah, the, the butter is always. Going and to what be time of day is this? A 
is it like no hot cross buns after four pm sort of thing? Or look, I think <gasps> wow. I, yeah, I I kind of like it in the morning. You know, mm. I think before like you know, but but it's sort of like you know. They're available on Boxing Day, so time's gone out the window. It's I sort guess of like that's, so. a, that's a that's a race we've lost. Yeah, so. there's a, apparently one of the major supermarket retailers has a hot cross bun gin liqueur. Of course they do. <laughs> Of course they do, and everybody should. Do. People that like I, that sort of stuff should. should I would drink actually it. buy that. That's one thing where I would jump on the bandwagon. I'd get like a hot crust bun, like cocktail or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. There's sort of a few things like you know, there's there's a. And like... I'd have it in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and just quickly, what about the cross itself? Is, does, is there much deviation with that? It's sort of mainly there's sort in of the two things. It's kind of it's usually um, made from a paste of flour and water or it's made with puff pastry. So it's sort of like there's two ways of doing it. I don't think it makes a huge, in terms of Mm flavour, I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference. I've also encountered uh, marzipan crosses, which are delicious as well. And I think people have done them in icing as well. But sort of those those two are the traditional ones. But, like, you know, as we have been discussing, tradition seems to be out the window. We're all going to hell in a (laughs) handbasket. Nothing's sacred (laughs) anymore. Nothing's sacred. It's sort of like, but I will probably be popping by. There's uh, Peter Pippo's doing, they're making their own buns and then they're putting like an orange gelato yes. okay. go instead, of the, right. instead of the orange peel. So I'm kind of thinking... Mm, you think you're going to indulge I might, I might not tell my brother, yeah. but, but do that. All of us in the sleeping bag. See you tomorrow morning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Alexandra Collier is a writer for the stage, screen and print who lived for a decade in New York where her work was produced off-Broadway, including the musical Trip Light, her plays Underland and Take Me Home, and where she wrote for relationship expert and self-help juggernaut Esther Perel. Now, Alexandra is back in Australia with her own book, the debut memoir, Inconceivable, Heartbreak, Bad Dates and Finding Motherhood. And to tell us about it, the author and Princess Bride enthusiast joins us now. Alexandra, <laughs> welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. T- tell us where this story began for you. Well, it started in New York and... Uh, the memoir starts there as well. When I woke up to this sudden longing to want to have a baby, basically, in my mid-30s, which is something that can happen to women. It's a very strange phenomenon. It strikes you like lightning. And unfortunately, my partner at the time, who was a lovely guy, did not share that desire or he wasn't ready yet. And yet is a very amorphous term when you're in your mid-30s and you're staring down the barrel of your waning fertility. So... Mm. Sadly, I had to leave that relationship and I was catapulted sort of back to Melbourne and I ended up living with my parents, single and heartbroken, and I boarded this sort of roller coaster hellscape of online dating and did that for a few years. But at the same time, I was wrestling with whether or not I could become a solo mother by choice and have a baby via donor sperm. Mm. And you encountered resistance Within your own family, not not casting any shade there. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, they've all read the book and they're still speaking to me. <laughs> just, just. Yes, I did encounter resistance mainly from, you know, some sometimes from people around me but from within my own family. And I think, you know, you have to read the book to get all the juicy details on that. Mm. I don't want to smear any more mud than I've already done <laughs> on the page. Yeah. But I think, to be fair to my parents, 
they were hoping that I would fall in love and have a partner and have children and that, you know, as parents, we want the best for our children. And they wanted me to have all of those things. And so for them, there was a bit of a coming out process to sort of borrow queer terminology in telling them that I was planning to take this path. And they had to sort of grieve the life that they had imagined for me in the same way that I had already sort of spent a couple of years sort of wrestling with whether or not I should do this and grieving the narrative that we're all fed, especially as little girls, it's like you're going to get married, you know, this sort of princess story mm. of, you know, marriage and babies and with, a you know, with a knight or sort of in shining armour kind of thing. Yeah, it's an extraordinary book and oh, the stories you. that you're telling are just so <laughs> hilarious and, and extremely, you know, uh, vulnerable and, and just so generous in their, um, their gift to others who, you know, sort of uh, encountering your experiences and also might sort of see themselves as well as part of this this new narrative that you're talking about. We were kind of wondering in the process of writing this book how it might have challenged or opened up your definitions of what family can be. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the tide is, you know, shifting, thankfully. And when I started talking about this and when I first heard about it, you know, when I was living in New York, I heard this um, New York Magazine columnist talk about how she was a solo mum by choice. I didn't even know the term existed. I didn't know that there were solo parents. It was just a complete revelation to me that this was a possibility. And, you know, now on the other side of it, I've met this whole community of solo parents, you know, solo dads and solo mums, mainly solo, mainly women who identify as mothers, but, you know, also, you know, solo parents and solo dads. And it Really, I think part of the reason I wrote this book was to destigmatize this path to making a family, to say it's not the, you know, the kind of second best option. It's not the loser choice to do it this way, that it's, you know, it's OK to take your future into your own hands, your reproductive future and do it this way. I'm not saying everyone should go out and do it, but I'm saying it's a possibility and it's out there and more and more women are embracing this path yeah and I love that you do mention kind of in the book like you know it's it can be quite empowering as well like to kind of navigate the process of um, maintaining a relationship and co-parenting can be you know incredibly tough and you know a lot of relationships kind of do end you know after the you know, I think it was maybe the first year or so, um, which I found after really interesting. After having a baby. Yeah, yeah exactly. After, yeah, having a baby, not the first year, which I found really <laughs> uh, interesting. But also, like, as a 37-year-old female, like, regardless of wh- whether you think you want to have a child or not, I recognise that it's definitely an issue you need to interrogate, especially I feel like it is gendered for females. And I wonder, like, what is some information you wish you had, you know, mm. earlier before going into this? journey that is an excellent question sorry I really piled it on there no no (laughs) I love it I love it all (laughs) I think there's a few things because knowledge is power Mm -hmm. sort of in infertility it's sometimes it's also panic Mm. you know there's this kind of mounting pressure on women in their 30s it's like figure out you know freeze your eggs do it now like before you're 35 because it's like you know you feel like your last good eggs are suiciding every month and it's just all over for you so there's the kind of media panic around it too But in another way, I think that we should teach women and men and people how to get pregnant as Mm. well as not as how not to get pregnant. So, like, you know, education, sex education shouldn't just be like 
just take the pill and avoid getting pregnant at all costs. It should also be, well, you know, your fertility is actually on a timeline and it will run out, unfortunately, as a woman. It is very gendered. And I think you're so right. Women always have to answer the question Mm. for themselves whether or not they will or will not have children, even if they don't want them. Yes. It's like we have to answer the question for ourselves. We have to answer it for the world. And, yeah, so I think I would have told my past self if I could sort of, you know, teleport, you know, an image of my current life to my past self that... It wasn't going to, you know, automatically turn me into some like spinster loser <laughs> being a solo parent. You know, I think I had this idea that it was there was some maybe some shame around it, this idea that, you know, I was going to be completely unlovable and no one would ever want to date me again. Not that I, I rarely date, to be honest, because I don't have time. I have a three and a half year old. But, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who want to date me, maybe. <laughs> um, but I oh, think. Four, six, six, nine, yeah. <laughs> I was fishing. I was like waiting for you to jump in, Daniel. Um, Yeah, so I think I would just tell myself, you know, this is not a, as a friend of mine said to me, I don't know if I can swear on air, a shitty option. Mm. Mm. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, it all worked out, which is terrific, and uh, your child and you are living a gorgeous life. However, the, the book does go into your ex. Uh, and what about the idea of readiness? I mean, who's ever ready? No one's ever ready to have Mm. a baby. No, I think that is part of what I wrestled with as well, doing it on my own. There was sort of no, you know, when you've got a partner, it's sort of, there's an inevitability often to it, I think, in a sort of straight partnership, obviously. Um, And you don't, maybe you do interrogate your level of readiness in a partnership as well, but, you know, often people can fall pregnant accidentally. But I, I think you're right. I think that was a big turning point for me that I realised I'm never going to be ready to do this. But whilst my romantic future can wait, my reproductive timeline can't. So mm. I could meet someone at any point. You know, I can meet someone when I'm 80. You know, God willing, I live to 80. And But I can't necessarily meet someone. I can't necessarily have a baby. I can't have a baby at 80. So, mm. you know, that wasn't an option. And so you're, in, you're a writer, you document. When did you start realising that a, maybe a book was forming out of your experiences? I think when I, I, part of the reason I wrote this book was because there were no books like this around that were telling this sort of very personal, raw, perhaps too oversharey story of my life about wrestling with this choice. But there was one pivotal moment, I think, I went to a midwife appointment when I was about 12 weeks pregnant and the midwife said to me, can I ask you a personal question? And I thought, oh, God, no, <laughs> please don't. Like nothing good ever comes out Can I ask you a personal question. She knew that I was a solo parent. I just told her that. So I thought, oh, God, what is coming? And she said, did you just want to have a baby? And I thought, you know, what am I supposed to say? To this? So I said, yes. You know, like I just sort of shut it down with a yes. But I thought there were so many questions underneath that question. Mm. There was so much curiosity. She wasn't ill-intentioned. She was just naive. And curious like a lot of people are and people do still lean in when I say that I did this and they say you did what and who and donor sperm and you know people want to know about it and I think what the midwife was saying was it, maybe there was judgment under there but there was also curiosity but it was like why would you do something like this why would you do it without a partner why would you you know like what would lead a person to make these kind of choices and so I think I wanted to write that book that kind of answered that question and mm. wrestled with that question mm. and then you had to raise a child on your own during lockdown yes 
Yes. Well, it was about six months old, my child, when lockdown started, which was pretty rough. I mean, being a solo parent, you're already kind of, you know, there's no one coming home at the end of the day if it's you raising the child at home. So that was a challenging period. I wouldn't necessarily recommend throwing that in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and what about the idea of writing nonfiction and opinion articles? And, you know, it's not necessarily well remunerated. And yet you cop, when you're good at it, you cop heat. Yes. Oh, are you talking about Everything. me being trolled recently? Yeah. Um, well, well, I, I didn't necessarily <laughs> know about that, but it comes with the territory, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's funny. I wrote an article recently about how we should raise children in a village and I got a lot of ire and rage from people about that. Um, it sounds like a beautiful concept. I can't imagine that concept. inspiring. It's a lovely People were rage. upset about it. Um, yeah, we, we don't have time to go into it, but I think... Do you cop heat? Well, it's or just funny. The, being raw and being honest and just wearing it anyway. Yeah, it is definitely a risk. I, I think I read this um, book called The Art of Memoir when I was writing this by Mary Carr, and she says every memoir destroys you. <laughs> and you know, some people would say every book that you write destroys you, but I think there is, there is a kind of masochism in a way to writing about your own life and writing the truth, and it's it is terrifying to do. And I spent I spent about two years in a state of high anxiety about what my parents would think of this book. And mm. you know, my mum is the antagonist in the book. She, um, you know, she comes off well ultimately, but. That is a tricky thing to do, to write about your own parents, especially when they are helping you with babysitting. That's right. You navigate the line perfectly. And it is, it's the gift of this book in the sense that you do sh- share so much and people really benefit from, from the beautifully lucid way of your descriptions. And, yeah, so it is, it's a, a, great, um, a great gift to everybody. There's a few celebrity uh, name drops as well. Esther Perel comes in <laughs> yeah. at some point. Yes, Astaire, working for Esther was just an absolute dream. She's, she can look into your... Your soul like she looks at you <laughs> and she through knows zoom, apparently. yeah through zoom she can see what your, all your issues are just by staring at <laughs> mm. i believe that 100 yeah. percent. Yeah. well maybe next time you go back to new york it'll be for a book tour or to, oh, for having your play please, stage that'd be amazing exactly yeah. uh alexandra collier's book is inconceivable heartbreak bad dates and finding solo motherhood a new member out by hachette alexandra great pleasure to meet you thanks for having me triple r From Bite Into It, we're joined by a human archive of Tech Information, Dan Seven. Morning, Dan. Good morning, Breakfasters. How's it all going? Yeah, wow. excellent. You, you come bearing good news. I come bearing good news. Um, so up until yesterday morning, I was planning on doing a bit of a doom and gloom spot, but um, it turns out <laughs> that I didn't need to. Um, and that is because uh, the federal government has announced that they're putting some money into saving Trove. Now, um, for those of you who have never heard of Trove, Trove is the uh, online archive that is run by the National Library of Australia and in partnership with about 900 other libraries across the country and essentially it is Australia's historical online database. Now um, it contains more than 14 billion digitised records and that's everything from uh, old newspapers like you know defunct newspapers as well as the ones that are currently up to about the sort of mid 1950s early 1960s um, recordings manuscripts official documents um, it's all f- and it's all freely available online so like I said 14 billion digitised artifact digitised artifacts and stories 26 million newspaper pages and more than 1200 records of first people's languages which is fantastic um, other interesting things that you can find on Trove is an original manuscript of Waltzing Matilda by Banjo Patterson, um, the architect Jörn Utzon's model of the Sydney Opera House, 
and um, a recording from a radio segment in the early 1990s talking about a new whiz-bang invention called Wi-Fi. Um, so you know we're talking we're talking about you know basically the history of australia on one website now um it's the idea of libraries cataloging things online isn't new there's been the australian bibliographic bibliographic network since the early 1980s and that's essentially been you know the catalog of australian libraries in one spot but um by 2008, so we'll go into a bit of a history of what Trove is and how, how, how it came to be. So between the sort of early 80s and the early 2000s, the National Library um, was putting together various databases online and they ended up with eight massive kind of groups of things and decided to put it all together under one uh, umbrella and one searchable, public searchable database. And so that was that was uh, developed in 2008 and launched in 2009 and it's been going continuously since then um but like all cultural institutions that are government funded they are subject to the whims of government and so uh late last year or maybe even early this year i think i think it was the fairfax papers or whatever they're called now um reported that trove being funded by the federal government was only funded to the end of june this year so um that spurred some people into action to start a petition to save Trove and um, that got about 20,000 signatures. Most of those probably amateur historians and um, genealogists. But uh, yesterday the um, the federal government did announce that they've, they're putting uh, $9 million in, in, as part of a $33, I think, million dollar funding to the National Library writ large for things like, you know, stopping the water damage to the books that they've got in so, uh, in the library. They're also committing about 9 to $10 million just to maintain Trove. So it's a tremendous relief and very much uh, a development of, of the last couple of days. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's, it's rare that I can come in and talk about something <laughs> that is actually newsworthy. But, yeah, look, it's, it's a huge thing and it's really important that we have this kind of thing because... You know, the internet is our archive. Like it or not, we all talk about, you know, the, the latest cool thing that happens on the internet. But there are millions of abandoned MySpace accounts out there that are a testament to the fact that the thing that the, that the internet does best is tell us about our history. Is it easy to search? It's so easy to search. You just um, you just uh, Google Trove and it comes up there. You can find I, – I was uh, – often Trove will come up in like – high in things. If you're looking for like Australian history stuff, Trove will be in the top five to ten results regardless of what it is that you're searching for. I, I, I actually was trying to find some information about my family history for like, you know, some family project I was doing and discovered my grandparents' wedding announcement in the August of wow. 1939, which was really cool. Yeah, I think we take definitely take for granted, or I know I can, I shouldn't speak for all of us, of what you can find on the internet. Absolutely. I know if I can't find like certain information about something or someone, I'm like, oh, perturbed because we're so used to having everything at our fingertips. Well, that's exactly yeah. it. It's almost, and you know, it's, it's that thing of, you know, technology has made things easier. So if a website loads in less than three seconds, you throw the computer out the window. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the Argus is no longer with us. So no. as these media businesses collapse, we need someone to archive it. Absolutely. And we're in a really unique spot of history here where we do have the ability to keep these things more or less intact for as long as we're willing to provide them. So if you think about the huge arch of human history, you know, the tens of thousands of years that humans have been creating culture. The things from more than five or 600 years ago are patchy. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're disputed. And, you know, history is always going to be disputed. But, like, you just don't have, the, have the, the, the clarity of what those things are. We're at a point in history now where things will remain clear forever. And so 
regardless of what your angle on looking at history is, you will be able to look at the primary sources and say this is what actually happened and this is what people were saying. We don't have that with, you know, looking at things like, you know, dodgy uh, paper results of 1750s ship records or even cave paintings, that kind of stuff. It's all open to interpretation. So it's a very interesting point in history that we're going to be able to actually, like, timestamp very clearly what is happening now and maybe for the last 50 to 100 mm. years. And the listener says you can also save specific articles in, as PDFs quite yeah, easily. Absolutely. It's full it, and it's fr- it's completely freely available. It's 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 really if you don't if you don't know Trove, jump onto the National Library's website um, and look it up because it is it is so valuable. You will find something there that will, you know, make you realize the value of it. So a, a humans are digitizing these? Yeah, no, they are. So it's it's it they they actually have People going through the various, um, you know, microfilms of papers from years ago and to, and turning them into digital assets and placing them online. And they're continuing to add they to are. Trove constantly. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. So I think they've 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 got records up to 1957. I'm not sure if they've got a policy beyond beyond that, but certainly things up to 1957 and like what was it, 25 million individual pages of, of newspaper. And we're, and we're not just talking about the big names. You know, they've got stuff like you know, the Barrier Morning Mail out in Broken Hill or, um, you know, the, the tiny little papers or, and, you know, n- niche niche magazines that might have only been around for, you know, five or ten years, you know. There, there's a lot of uh, feminist history that kind of, you know, from the 1970s, there's those kind of zines that pop up for a year or two and then disappear. Stuff like that is out there as well. Absolutely. It reminds me a bit of like when Channel 31 wants their funding renewed and they have to wait for a minute to midnight before yeah. confirmation. Well, and this is the thing. This is government funding all the time and it's always cultural institutions that it happens to. Things like, um, you know, the Channel 31 or the, uh, the uh, National Library, National Gallery of Australia is another one. So yesterday there was a, like there was a large announcement of funding for various cultural bodies, which I'm, I, I'm not talking. I don't want to sort of say one side of politics is better than the other, but it does seem that the arts and culture is more likely to be funded by the Labor governments than the, the coalition governments. Um, and and we're not talking about providing a you know, fancy tea room to the people at the state, at the National Library or or the National Gallery. We're talking about stopping the, like, roof from collapsing in and water damaging these things that once they're gone, they're gone. Mm. Yeah. But also modern books of history that are popular and, you know, shelves are groaning under them, they're written by people who need trove. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, uh, in a brief brief life as a, as, an, as a historian, I relied on trove for everything. And, and it's, how, it's how people are getting the information to digest it and, and tell us, how history was it's not it's not it's it's it is something that is if you if you speak to academics it's where they go first Mm. it's absolutely where they go first and and you know the days of going into the library and like scanning through microfilm for days weeks you know some some will still enjoy that because there's a certain kind of charm to doing that but you can just jump onto trove and do a bit of a search and find the words uh, that you're looking for yeah any browsing tips for first time trove users i mean you mentioned some feminist zines or different things yeah look i I reckon start start with like if you're if you're not from melbourne Mm. try try your local paper see what's there start okay. start there um you know it, even if you're you know they're like suburban and regional papers we don't have them here anymore really that much but you know back in the day there was a, there were two or three newspapers for every town mm. and 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 they are by and large a lot of them are on trove one thing to be um, mindful of is that even though the scans are done by people the uh the the, the word scans to actually turn because you can do word searches based on the um 
um, based on what's on the page. And I, 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 it's kind of like something I do. Instead of doing Wikipedia editing, I go onto Trove and, like, find a newspaper article. And then, because, like, it, it'll just be making these grainy little symbols into... And, like, it'll be a complete gobbledygook. There'll be, like, you know, random letters and punctuation in there. And if you, But if you read the paper, you can actually make an edit yourself it's a bit it's a bit participatory or it used to be i'm not sure if they still have that function but you could actually go in there and if something was incorrect in the in the sort of reading of the newspaper article you were able to actually edit it yourself which is mm. kind of fun there is something satisfying also about it being rock solid and not tampered with absolutely mm. yeah no it's just oh, i love it so much <laughs> <laughs> all right well the website it as it's a collaboration between the National Library of Australia and hundreds of partner organisations. So the website is trove.nla.gov.au and I think there's a trove of volunteers you can get involved as Absol- well. Absolutely, absolutely. If you, if you jump on that trove website, you can definitely get involved and I, I would encourage you just have a look and see see what is there for you. Dan Simmons, thank you. Thank you. Ah, that's right. Triple R. The Reserve Bank of Australia's record run of interest rate rises is over or on pause and to fill us in on what it means and where we're at, we welcome back from Impact Economics, Emma Gray. Morning, Emma. Morning. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's our deep and biting pleasure. Can you, uh, under whatever circumstances, whether financial news is good or bad, uh, can you (laughs) tell us about the decision yesterday and what it was and why? Yeah, fortunately, I think I'm finally here with some good news (laughs) for most people. Um, So after 10 rates, rises in a row, the RBA has finally put interest rates on hold. So at yesterday's meeting of the board, they decided to keep interest rates steady at 3.6%. And they flagged in their statement that they understand they've gone pretty hard and fast, although they didn't use that language. And they recognise that the full impacts of uh, all these rises will take some time to see what the impacts actually are. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a we're going to wait and see what the data says before we decide whether or not to go again. And so at the end of this month, we get a big data release, which is the quarterly inflation data. So that's that's what they've been targeting with all these interest rate rises. Inflation was um, has been sky high. It was... in December, fell back to 6.9%, 6.8% in February, which is great. But they'll be looking at that release at the end of this month, which will tell us what happened in March. And so if that was like a big fall over the quarter, then they might pause again for another month. But if it seems like that pace of inflation pulling back is kind of slowing down and it might be sticking at above six, then they'll say, okay, we need to go again. Mm. Given the psychology of it, is there anything that we've done collectively to instigate the pause or is it purely a a wait-and-see approach? So there's a few things um, that I guess we have done in a sense um, that – have instigated the pause um, and that's really that we've stopped spending as much and so in stopping spending as much that has helped 
to see the fall in inflation that we did see between December and February. And so I think that was kind of one of the key data points where they were like, okay, yeah, that gives us a confidence that we're now moving in the right direction. We have well and truly peaked. Also, um, overall economic activity, economic growth has started to slow. A lot of that slowdown has come from slowing down in household consumption, which is um, kind of adverse as it might sound, that's what they're trying to do. They're mm. trying to get us to stop spending so that we're not putting more upwards pressure on prices. So, yeah, I guess in that change in our behaviour is has given them a bit of the confidence to pause. Is there a bit of a pat on the head element to it? Like, <laughs> you're doing well, keep up this behaviour. And as a reward, here's a treat. Perhaps. I must say I haven't really thought about it in that way. And I must say... The RBA has been copying so much criticism, and they always do, but that criticism has been really heightened and, um, you know, not throwing stones. Like, I've definitely been part of that criticism as well. But I do get the impression that they're not – they haven't changed their behaviour because of that. You know, they're not doing anything (laughs) because of the criticism they're getting. So I don't think when people are saying, oh, have they paused now because of all the criticism they're getting, if they were going to pause because of what we're saying, they would have paused ages ago. Mm. So um, I don't think necessarily they're thinking about it in terms of like, oh, we'll reward everyone. Well, in terms of uh, our behaviour and managing it. Yeah, which yeah. Is clear, which is what it's all about, I imagine. It definitely is. Um, it's really difficult, though, because this mechanism that the RBA has, which is a really blunt instrument, it's kind of the main one thing they can change is interest rates. It only impacts mostly really us here in Australia and our spending, whereas a lot of the pressures that have actually been driving up inflation are coming from overseas, especially like Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and um, what that's doing to energy prices and electricity prices in the latest inflation data those were the um, that was the one part of prices that was still going up so it's quite hard that the RBA is trying to pull back inflation by stopping us from spending when there are other pressures mm-hmm. that are still pushing up prices at the same time. And what's the relationship between the RBA and housing construction? So we know the direct impacts of what the RBA does um, on interest rates is basically makes mortgages more expensive. It makes any kind of debt more expensive, but mortgages are kind of the most prevalent kind of debt that we have. So compared to this time last year, which was just before interest rates were starting, um, had, yeah, were rising back when we had the lovely cash rate of 0.1% as opposed to now 3.6%. Now the number of new mortgages that people are getting has fallen by 30% and the number of um, new homes being built has also fallen by 30% um, with an even bigger fall for units and apartments. Uh, So That's taking a big toll on the construction industry, particularly because the construction industry, um, especially at like the housing dwelling level, has been dealing with sky high um, materials prices. So like 
timber and and everything else has been through the roof but a lot of them were locked into fixed price contracts um we talk about fixed price home loans there was also fixed price contracts for building homes and then suddenly all their costs went up massively with the cost of timber um and also the cost of labor because of all these skill shortages so they lost um, a lot of money uh, through that time and then kind of since then on more recent home contracts been trying to make back those costs by charging more and then at the same time as that people have had bigger mortgages so all of that's culminated in people um, I guess dropping out of the housing market deciding to delay when they might build their next house um so all of that's really now taken a big toll on the construction industry which is off the back of them having made all these losses from all their input costs and materials costs being so high and so we saw that really culminated last week with the collapse of Porter Davis I think they're the sixth largest home builder in Australia and so that's got quite widespread impacts there's definitely a question mark now over um, I guess other major home developers and whether they might um, follow the same fate. Mm. Now amid all this there's been the review into the RBA where is that at now? So the review into the RBA interestingly just got handed into the treasurer Jim Chalmers last Friday and that review has been going on for months. That review wasn't although we might automatically think um, it was happening because of all the interest rate rises that have been happening. Um, That's not why it was happening. Um, It was happening, there's been calls for it well before all of this. Um, People have just been a bit dissatisfied with the RPA's performance. They have a target to keep inflation between 2 and 3%. And even before this high inflationary period, we were in a really low inflationary period. So they haven't been successful in hitting that target in quite some years. Um, So the review has been looking into how they go about targeting interest rates, as well as the broader operations and culture of the bank, and in particular, the board. And this is where I think we might see the largest shake-up from the recommendations of the review. Um, So most big central banks overseas, they separate out the board of the central bank from the experts who make the decision on monetary policy, which I think makes sense. We probably want the people deciding what to do with monetary policy being experts in that field. Um, But here in Australia, it's the board who makes those decisions. And most of our board, unfortunately, aren't experts in macroeconomics, in monetary policy. So that's probably where we might see the biggest shake-up, separating out the board. So they just look after what's happening with the bank as an organisation. And then you have a separate committee of monetary policy experts who are actually making the decisions on what to do about interest rates. Mm. And following this reprieve, what's your forecast? So it is a slight reprieve, but sorry to say, um, I wish I could have all good news, but unfortunately I think we will see... Um, definitely one, if not a couple more rate rises in the months ahead. So they've done uh, the 10 in a row and now I think we'll see a pause. Maybe they'll go again, another pause for a couple months. Maybe they'll go again. Um, But 
we're we're nearing the peak but we're not quite there yet um but fortunately the pace of those rises is definitely slowing down all right and just quickly philip lowe got a little nice sweet deal on his home loan didn't he Uh, (laughs) i think so he might have some questions to answer on that at the press club later today okay all right emma gray always great to chat thanks triple r Um, I think that we're all really, we all know the feeling, don't we, of like when you're standing at a pedestrian crossing, you've been there for a while, and then someone comes up behind you and... Oh, yes, of course. Taps the button. (laughs) Yes. And yeah, it's kind of like a bit of an insult. You're like, do you... And also makes you question a bit about that person as well. It's like, do you have that little faith in humanity that you think I am just standing here... I mean, absolutely. I, I definitely understand what you mean. Or there is that sense of like the satisfaction of the of the whole haptic feedback of like the the button of the yeah. street. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like what to, when it actually goes off? Like the sensor, yeah. or to, it's just a habit that you do. Perhaps so. Like I suppose it's a an as opportunity to interact with the urban landscape, and you know, there's a little bit of a, a playfulness to kind of pressing to the touch. button. But wouldn't you? I, I would also make the case though, but. It's definitely kind of like a like a social interaction where you feel like it You've is loaded pressed. to press the button. Like <laughs> I would feel very aware, it, despite how much I love, you know, I, no, I don't love pressing the button. But so, hypothetically, if I did, I would still be aware that that sends a message. Would, to how, the person who is already standing at the lights. No, I, I definitely know what you mean. That that kind of questioning and the sense that, yeah, they have sort of underestimated your sort of civic responsibility. Yeah, exactly. You're like, well, it breaks of trust issues for me. <laughs> I anyway. would view the, the joke's on b- both of us because for some percentage of intersections, the button's dead and doesn't work. Oh, And it's really? just to give a false sense of autonomy to pedestrians and uh, it's just on a cycle, the lights are on a cycle well, anyway. And in the CBD, wow. I understand that they are automatic. Yeah, very much so. so I've there never, isn't... okay, I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. So here we have a little, you know, Shakespearean yeah. power struggle going on over something that's not even it, it's, real. It's irrelevant. It doesn't even matter if we're there or not. Mm. That's, yeah, well, that, that's another thing is I've been, like, hyper aware of pedestrian crossings and kind of my role or style as a pedestrian recently because I think it, it started ticking over in my brain when I was in Adelaide. There was a few crossings there that took forever mm. and it just made it, like, I felt, like, embarrassed or insecure all of a sudden standing at these lights. I was like, how long am I supposed to wait? Is this a joke? Like, am I on camera? Like, it, You're right. It's like an existential sort of experience as well. Like, do I exist? Am I recognised by the transit? And I got that it was a very busy kind of intersection. But, um, yeah, I'm intrigued. I've been meaning to look it up and I'm not sure where I'd find this information. If any listeners know how long it – like there must be standards with the – oh, like – because um, they're automated. Like, I wonder the maximum amount of time that you can be left standing at a pedestrian crossing. Because there was a point where I was like, I feel like I'm on, like, Funniest Home Videos or something, just standing there. What felt like an eternity, it was probably like a minute, a minute and a half. Um, I think also the, on a major highway or, like, a couple of lanes. Yeah, this was four lanes, yeah. this, this highway that I was trying to cross. And so And so you're standing there, you feel like you're an idiot, but also when everything everyone stops, it's really sort of catwalk. Yeah. Vibe, isn't no, it? No, you'd think that. And then it's not even, it's barely 
possible to cross the road in the amount of times oh, yeah. that you're given. Oh, but in it's, terms of the attention of your gate. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, like you're like, this is looking. me. Mm. Yeah. And then you feel guilty as well if you press the button, but then you dash across before it goes green. Yeah. I'm definitely guilty of that. But, yeah, I like I said, I've just been hyper aware of kind of my style as a pedestrian lately because I was crossing the road like – yeah, I was contemplating the crossings and then I, at the end of my street's quite a busy road and intersection, you got trams and there's always lots of action going on, people parking, popular cafes and stuff. And I was on one corner of the street and there was a guy on the other corner and we were both trying to cross the road at the same time. And I don't know whether it was just me, this is, could be more revealing about myself, but I felt like we were kind of competing. <laughs> about like crossing the road it was like it was very busy and we're like oh, okay I saw him stepping out he was going to do like the midway you go midway into the road which I think takes a bit of confidence doesn't it especially when there's trams tram tracks involved so he went he edged out and then I was like all right I'm gonna edge out too and then so we we're about both like maybe about 30 meters apart but kind of doing the, the head checks left to right and then I think I'm not sure who got across the road first, but I, I definitely felt like there was this bit of competition. We both crossed to the um, the footpath, and then I realised we we're walking in the same direction towards um, the train station. He and I noticed I kind of stuck to the corner and following the footpath. He did like a diagonal cut across the road, which really kind of sped up his commute. So he now had a fair distance on me. Is and the then hypotenuse? Was, the... Yeah, he mm. used the hypotenuse, absolutely. I should have paid more attention in maths. So he cut ahead and got a fair bit of distance on me. And at this point, I'm like, we're in a race. And then I was like, I bet we're both going to the train station. And he took a left and then I knew you could enter the train station um, another way. So he turned left and I, when I was almost certain he wouldn't be able to see me, I ran, I jogged up the side of the train station and beat him. And was in, there in sense, my mind, I won. Was there a I sense of him. surprise when they discovered that you had miraculously beaten them? Yeah, like I would have just turned in and, yeah, he would have been maybe like a few steps behind me. I mean, he probably wasn't even aware. In my mind, we were competing, but he may not have known. I would have clocked you and I would have found it very weird that you just suddenly materialised mm. ahead of me and I you would have to deduce that you ran. No, I'm quite a fast walker. Like people always comment. I always like over maybe the last 10 years I've lived off like quite a busy stream. People are always like, I see you pacing up and down like a lot. Yeah. Mm. But it's something I pride myself on kind of, you know, getting around efficiently. But do you ever feel that? Like how do you feel your vibe is as a pedestrian? I think I show a lot of leadership. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How so? I think when the lights are not, um, you know, responding to the real world, that if I go ahead and I don't have a child or anything with me and I'm only sacrificing myself, I kind of break the seal for people. Okay. So you see it less as like a competitive thing. Yeah. But more like, hey, come with me. Yeah. Or I will lead us across the uh, road uh, to safety. I'll be a pioneer at yeah. this um, pedestrian crossing and I'll lead the way and I'll show you that it's okay. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> really beautiful. But I was thinking of like, because we learned last 
week that competitive rock stacking is a thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you've thrown a spanner in the works because you see it more as like a group exercise team building your approach to being a pedestrian. I kind of am seeing it more of this competitive element. I don't know. I just thought maybe that could be a, a sport or some kind of competition. It's a variation on Olympic walking but within an urban environment with obstacles that would simulate the everyday sort of aspects of commuting? Precisely, yeah. So there would be like your time-based That's kind right. of um, events where it would be um, – there'd be a number of different variables. Catching the 8.15 a.m. train. Exactly. You've got – a train to catch you've got trams you've got people dropping kids off at school you've got people getting coffees u-turns all of it and lots of traffic signals that you have to press <laughs> yes pedestrian crosses and then so yeah maybe there's a group of pedestrians unleashed onto the road and who and maybe you have to abide because i think it's the law as a pedestrian you um are supposed to cross like the most efficient the shortest distance of the road mm. to get onto the footpath where i'm quite partial to i diagonal wherever you can all right competitive urban perambulating yeah perambulating <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll see it in the olympics yeah hope so it's a thought triple r Time to talk literature with Bibliophile and all-round ray of light, Laura Pietrabon. Morning to you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for that lovely intro. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Uh, now, what do you bring us amid the fog this morning? Yes, amid the fog, I bring you a very funny uh, book called, funnily enough, um, Funny Ethnics by Shirley Lee. It's a debut novel um, and she's written that for a firm press. And um, Funny Ethnics is about uh, Sylvia, who lives in a place called Yaguna. Um, apologies to anybody from Western Sydney, but it's out in Western Sydney way. And she is a second generation um, Vietnamese uh, woman. The novel opens with Sylvia sitting down to dinner with her parents um, and cousin Duke, who frequently um, appears in and out of Sylvia's life, to tell them that she will be dropping the law degree component of her degree to focus solely on writing. Um, and as you may or may not, as you can imagine, um, the decision does not go over very well with her um, very strict uh, Vietnamese parents who arrived in Australia at some point during the um, 70s and 80s. Um, this is a really wonderful setup to the novel, but immediately uh, the book kind of subverts your expectations because we don't just launch straight into a classic coming-of-age kind of narrative, um, narrative with, you know, that three-arc structure and a big resolution at the end. Um, it goes directly into these, like, wonderful little vignettes of Sylvia's life. Um, so we, you know, flash back to when she was younger and, you know, taking all of this extra tutoring um, to go through selective schools um, and get a get a spot there in Sydney. You know, we take her through her praying um, to get good marks on her exams and then kind of, like, apologising because she knows it's not, like, a very like um what's the word like important thing to pray for but she feels like she has to um we see her through university we see her getting to know her friend Tammy and their adventures in in dating and life and and going out clubbing and we eventually see her like 
come back around um, to a job in the Yaguna uh, Learning Centre as a customer liaison assistant. So we kind of go back and forth through her life, I guess, between the decision to make, uh, to drop her law degree, seeing everything that's led up to it and kind of returning back to the present. And what I really love about this is you get to see Sylvia, I guess, very naturally and in her own environment. The whole thing is kind of told through her perspective and you see all of the different forces pushing and pulling her in one direction or another. At first, I was very kind of frustrated with her. She's like very funny, very witty and clearly has like a very good sense of herself but she's not necessarily the best at putting that out into the world you know she's not quite that high achieving extremely academic model minority that her parents want her to be but she's not quite you know a full rebel that's ready to kind of like turn her her back against what she was brought up with and forge her own path into the world and she sits this very sits on this very like wobbly line between the two and that narrative structure um, which I did find myself pushing against a little bit because I did just want that big, you know, yes, go go for your dreams, girl, like, you know, achieve, write, write your dream stories, you know, achieve all those things, like have that beautiful resolution at the end. But it's not life and I think that's what this novel shows really well. Like Sylvia is kind of stuck and she's got all of these forces pulling her and she's very slowly trying to push her way out and forge her own path and find her own voice and it's not until you reach the end of the novel and you kind of look back at it as a whole and you're like, what a great journey that she did go on. It's a, it's a small journey because it's reflective of life and reflective of how hard it is sometimes to change and forge your own path. Um, so I think it's a really clever like novel from Shirley Lee. It's her debut, as I mentioned before, and it's really good to kind of play I think a little bit on people's expectations of what this kind of novel is um, about a young millennial second generation woman from Vietnam making her way in Australia. Mm. Um, She was a great funny character as well like there were lots of I I couldn't quite place I guess exactly when the story was taking place but Sylvia made a lot of references to growing up in the mean girls generation like there's one point where she's on a date with a couple of different guys and she's like you know negging's nothing for me I grew up in the negging generation like you know she just lets these kind of weird things that guys sometimes say to you roll off of her um and her mind is going over all of it the whole time and she makes some really good observations about her life and her family and the things that she does um and I think it's just a very kind of strong and different way of, of looking at that story it's not your typical coming of age story it's it's much more real and much more centered in in community you know um, I'm gonna say Yanguna again because the story doesn't really take place in like central Sydney but that suburb that she comes from feels so lived in and feels so real to me and so um, so you familiar. feel like you've, you've trans- yeah. been transported there? I feel during- like I've been transported there and it totally makes sense to set the story there because not all of us are lucky enough to live in a bustling metropolis and even if, even if we do live in that bustling metropolis, it's not necessarily where our lives centre and, and circle 
circle around. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was a very enjoyable, enjoyable novel. Um, and I also love that she named all of the chapters in her novel after like I am speak. So they're called like GTFO and like ASL and FML, you know, all great, great, <laughs> wonderful titles for chapters. Do we stay yeah. with Sylvia the whole time? Yeah, we stay with Sylvia the whole time. She's always our narrator. She's at front of mind. The other two, I guess, big presences in the book are her parents um and that's another very subtle weaving in that Shirley Lee did of um her parents who came out from Vietnam they were South Vietnamese so um there's all sorts of kind of like intricacies that she goes into a little bit between coming over from North Vietnam versus immigrating from South Vietnam and her parents are just fascinating like I could almost read a whole book about them but she weaves it in really carefully because Sylvia herself is I think never fully aware of what her parents went through um, other than kind of absorbing that through her own uh, growing up and things like that but her parents will say things like her mum talks about at one point not knowing if that morning you know people were going to storm into her primary school and like take her teachers away from her and things like that um, and they talk about you know like the American army leaving um, Vietnam and the the scariness that that was and then they'll flick back to like talking to Sylvia about being, you know, not achieving enough at school or skipping school or dropping out of law school um, and, you know, the expectations of the community and stuff like that. So she's very apt, uh, very good at, like, weaving in those kind of little things and you're like, oh, there's a little bit of the story that I don't quite understand. So you're in Sylvia's position mm. as well. Do you get the that. impression that Sylvia, the fictional Sylvia, is as competent and good a writer as real-life author Shirley? I get the impression that she could find her way there. Mm -hmm. um, we do get a little bit of her writing at the very end because she's doing some sort of media course, but the story doesn't really focus on doesn't really focus too much on like why she chooses to focus on on writing. Um, like it's not like there's uh, bits and pieces of her writing throughout, but we do get a real glimpse of some of it at the end when she hands in one of her journalism assignments. And it's this beautiful kind of like first person account of her going to a poetry slam in her community that's full of people of colour that they've put on the event. It's all told from their perspective. It's like their views on Australia, on the second or third generation immigrant experience. And she writes a beautiful kind of like first person review. And the teacher writes back to her and says, I cannot possibly pass this. We've told you time and time again that this class and journalism is all about objectivity and about telling other people's stories without kind of like seeing the content that's in front of her. So then she turns around and writes about, um, I, ca I can't remember, but it's something about like how to like f correctly fertilise your garden or something <laughs> like that. And we assume that that passes the the test that the teacher was talking about so I think Sylvia's on her way <laughs> yeah Sylvia, Sylvia will find will find herself and she'll find what's right for her um but I think where we leave her is like a really a really good point because you can see kind of like the you can see she's kind of back on track and she's working her way, mm. her way through and the title refers to funny haha -ha or funny peculiar oh a bit of both really I think um there is one fantastic scene where her and her friend Tammy go to a, a, a comedy show that is full of funny ethnic comedians. I believe it's, like, run by one of the guys from Fat Pizza who's, like, a feature, pops up, you know, oh, celebrity in the book. Um, but, like, I think it is a bit of that. It's, like, the things that people, the little microaggressions that people say to her throughout the novel – 
but also the fact that she is like Sylvia is a little bit funny haha like she's very wry and like you know the novel's a little bit satirical as well of like the life that she leads um and the things that she observes around her so and with the chapter titles too that you're yeah, saying as well yeah yeah it's it's a little bit of both um and I do love the co- I feel like um I should have looked up who designed the cover but it's a brilliant cover it's got like a bin chicken on the front and she does have a little chat about how you know in the book like bin chickens um sorry ibises that's what they're called aren't mm. they um they you know are hanging around because our environment has moved too far into their own environment and that's why they hang around all these like hot spots around like sydney and things like that um you know, and it's very much like a very interesting kind of look at how uh, we we as a, si- a society can sometimes tend to view immigrants and, and vice versa kind of tying in there. But, like, it's a brilliant, fun cover. All right. Well. This yeah. debut novel, the title and author again? Funny Ethnics by Shirley Lee. Uh, definitely recommend it. And that's out from Affirm Press. Um, came out, I think, at the end of February, so it's still pretty fresh and would recommend grabbing a copy and having a read. Funny ethics. Laura Pietro-Bron, thanks so much. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. means a lot. Dr Brown, the inspired comic creation of our next guest, has starred in Netflix's The Characters, Channel 4's Feel Good and Comedy Blaps, and short film The Passage, co-executive produced by Tim and Eric, and which premiered at Sundance, won Best Comedy at Aspen Shorts Fest, the Grand Jury Prize at the Nashville Film Festival, and Best Short Fiction Prize at the LA Film Festival. Eleven years after taking home Most Outstanding Show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, Dr Brown is back with Dr Brown Baturns, and to tell us about his new show, The Theatre Maker and Clowning Sensei joins us now. Dr. Brown, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our deep and abiding pleasure. (laughs) Uh, And it's so good that you come back and experience new things. You just had a hot cross bun. Mm. Yes, I have, and I do not like it. (laughs) I'm sorry. I told you guys that off air. I thought you came around to it. I'll say that on air. Yeah. Uh, I don't like your... (laughs) <laughs> cross buns or whatever they're what are they called? Hot cross buns. Yeah. I think some Australia. butter Sorry. A butter could some butter could change it. Yeah. I wonder if yeah. hot cross buns will become like Vegemite because we normally give international guests Yeah, I I love Vegemite. Mm. Don't don't get me wrong, but yeah, you gave me like kind of like a stale butterless <laughs> it was... old hot cross buns. It was not my first not a good first impression. <laughs> well, that's what pleasure. you requested on your rider when you were coming there. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Uh, now, what's your relationship with language, given the, the comedy deals so much with the physical? How are you in the morning and talking? It, well, I, uh, hey. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, how am I, like, right now? You're well, now, now you're obviously great. But yeah. as, a, as a rule, do you, I'm are you sparse with right your now. vocabulary um, as you are in, on stage? Uh, it, you mean in my life? Mm. Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't think so. Mm. Yeah, sorry, but because I don't have you, a good answer you're, to that a, you're. Correct me if I'm wrong. It, you used to be like a tour guide on bicycles. Yes, you're yeah. correct. How did you know that? <laughs> I'm. Yeah. A, I have the deep research team back at okay. in the office, <laughs> um, and the, you know that's a very onerous. You got to yammer away yeah. a lot in that gig. Yeah, sure. I mean. I, I don't know. It's just like sometimes you don't talk. Like, do you talk when, you, when you're doing certain things in your life? Mm-hmm. Are you talking all the time? Well, a lot of people bump around their house and commentate. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, really? Out loud to themselves? and Definitely. Really? Okay. Yeah, I guess I just don't like to talk so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, when the when the situation requires, I will. But I mean, <clears throat> I'm just doing a show currently where I don't speak because it doesn't feel like there's really a necessity to in any moment. But I have done shows where I do speak and and I will. But it's just like, oh, if I can communicate something without speaking, then I might as well just continue doing that mm. for now, you know, or within the show. So you trained at the infamous clown school Goliere over uh-huh. in France. Yes. So, which is kind of a, an approach to comedy. Like, can you fill us in on that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to just kind of like sum up. Okay, um, sorry. In 11 minutes. But I'm going to give that a try. Please. So. Ho- Strap in everybody. <laughs> Eleven minutes of what is clowning? No, but um, the yeah, it's just like I. I think I was telling you outside off air too. It's yeah. like it's just like <clears throat> it's a lot of like getting st- stripping away. You know, it's like we have so many kind of things that we put on top of ourselves and like our true selves, I guess, and you know, like things to cover up our vulnerability and our weaknesses and our, you know, deeper humanity, if you will. And so it's like the school is just all about like tearing that away. And it can be a really brutal process because often we like to have those things to kind of hide behind or, you know, stay safe behind. But um, so I think that's ultimately what the school was about, you know, Mm -hmm. so that then we can see you as an individual person in spirit and how you are beautiful um, and only you can be beautiful <clears throat> and, you know, wow. on stage. And with this you know. new performance, as you mentioned, there have been instances in the past where you've performed with language and this is more of a physical basis. Was yeah. there a sense that that place of, of vulnerability was where the idea for this show came from? For this particular show? Um, no, I, I, just, I feel like that vulnerability is just like a vehicle that I use like in making most of my shows. But um, yeah, I mean, maybe sometimes language can be like even a cover up of, you know, of, of hiding behind something, of hiding behind language. But often also language can reveal so much about you. Um, but yeah. The so. the workshops that you run for other performers. Yeah, w- which I will be doing in Melbourne, everybody. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. But anyway. To yeah, what degree do you, what do you harvest from your own uh, education in clowning? And what did you jettison? Because if that experience breaks people, do you... Yeah. D- d- do you kind of shed that? I mean, I I don't know if it breaks people. I don't know if that's the right um, word necessarily, but I think it just like kind of um, tears away, or you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe break is the right word, but just like <laughs> I breaks, think I was quoting breaks, you there previously. It, it doesn't break you. It just breaks. Um, it breaks uh, your, what you hide behind. Yeah. Mm. You know, it breaks like these little kind of habits that you have that don't really let us see you. Mm. It can be confronting in a way. And that, that cover is... up your vulnerability, basically. So, yeah, I think the workshop that I give is about that as well. But I may have my own kind of way of doing it. And again, it can be quite difficult for some people because a lot of people, you know, it's just, it's understandable in our lives and our society. We don't want to like, really be vulnerable, you know, Mm -hmm. or show who we are really. And often who we are is weak, you know, and scared and sad, Mm -hmm. Um, as well as, you know, happy and strong and all that. But but that's what we're trying to cover up most of the time. But in this kind of work, it's like you can't cover that that up. And how did you or how do you go about in general, like, building a show is it on on stage just exploring and having fun yes yes I mean that's how I have built this show and the show I did before 
Um, before that, I would like take little bits and put them to, to, together. But yeah, this show, if you come see it at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at the Malt House at 9.15 p.m., um, I, I basically started building this show last uh, August in uh, the U.K. at the Soho Theater and just spent two weeks in the Soho Theater with nothing, just mm. the costume and a bunch of props and just played with the audience and just wow. fucked around totally. Mm. I don't know if I can curse. Sorry about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and then when something worked, I just kept it and then built upon it the next day. And when things didn't work, I never brought them back. And then so this is a culmination of about like 40 shows of doing that. Wow. Yeah. You know? Is there anything that you've done? that works but you still don't like and so it goes like yeah yeah there'll be things that yeah that i'm like this doesn't belong in the show you know they might work or or there and and then on the on the opposite side there might be things that aren't working but i'm like i really want to do this like there's something there so i'll keep trying it every night and then you know eventually it'll it'll happen or not Mm. you know and then i'll also do things that i like that the audience doesn't like uh, you know, or yeah, that are just a little bit not good. I'm curious to, to ask as well how you might describe your show to people because I first saw you in 2011, I think, the show before you won the Barry, mm-hmm. and my friend just said to me, Dr. Brown, I'm not going to say anything, it's a wild ride, go. And then I just went and I absolutely loved it. I think it was like, yeah, one of my favorite like comedic experiences. Oh, sweet. Thank and you. so is it kind of, yeah, like, I don't know, do you kind of, yeah, how do you describe your show to people? Um, I I would, like, I used to describe it as, like, Monty Python meets Mr. Bean, mm-hmm. kind of, because it's, like, the surreal comedy of Monty Python and then, like, the kind of not speaking of Mr. Bean. But uh, I don't know. I, I like to think of it ultimately as an experience. You know, it's like I'm not there to present myself at, in my show and perform and this is, you know, I'm there to be with the audience mm. and for the audience and for us to all be in this room and for there to be things happening in this room that can only, you know, be happening between us. And so ultimately as an audience member, I hope you feel like this experience of being in the room together in this like in this wild ride ultimately. But um yeah. And I can definitely attest to that because Daniel and I saw you, I think it was on your opening night, and it is it is a part of the performance, like seeing other people's reactions and interactions without giving anything away. Yeah, the, the guy in front of me was just as much, you know, a part of the show as you were on stage, just his reactions and what, what gets people. I loved that. Element. Yeah, I think that's what's special about live performance, you know, and, and it's also – a, a, a weird concept to just like put a camera on it, you know, and I, I don't know if I would ever want to like film one of my live shows because I feel like it's not mm. just again like presentational. It's it's more about, OK, this moment that we're in this room to, together that will never happen again. Mm. You You'd know? be uh, uniquely perceptive to uh, boundaries and social cues. And uh, what did uh, what did social distancing by law do to people's boundaries since you've been here? Mm, I don't think it's... I don't notice any difference. Cool. Yeah. Mm. So I, I, I think I came at the right time. Like, if, if I came here last year, I probably would have noticed it or wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the things in my show that, that I do. But um, I, I, I feel like people are like... I don't know, I'm offering sweets to people out of my hand and they're all picking at it, you know, and it's like no one's making a big, big deal about it. So yeah. it feels like things are back to normal what's the most imperceptible or suggest the, the tiniest movement that you recall a listing a response from because it carries so much import but it's so minute on paper 
the tiniest uh, like gesture or, yeah, or, or that I've seen someone else do, or, or that, or, my... you, or that you've noticed in yourself. Um, I think if you're allowed to, I, I think if you if you allow yourself to be still enough. So that people are just watching you in your stillness. The littlest thing mm. can have so much importance, you know, like a little slight eye movement to the left might be enough or a little raise of the eyebrow. Like, but in order for that to kind of have any impact, it needs to have the stillness before, mm. you know, and I think that's what I like to, I like to stay in stillness a lot, you know, not just like sink there, but <laughs> allow us to breathe and then a little something can, can carry a lot of weight. Yeah. Uh, where do we find out about your uh, workshops? Uh, shoot. I don't know. I mean, a Facebook. There's a Dr. Brown Facebook group. Mm. You know, I'm sorry. I'm not on Instagram. I, I should get on it. Do you get pressured but... to just like, you know, if you just did TikTok and put out cute little videos. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I could ever do that, but maybe one day. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully TikTok will not exist in like two or three years. So then it'll be the next thing. Like, You're like yeah. willing for it to be banned so you don't have to make it. Sort of. <laughs> I can answer for you with the workshops. It is on Facebook, but it is kind of in clowning comedy groups. So scrounge around there if you are interested in doing that. Um, I've seen the show. Big fan. Absolutely loved Thank it. You so much. Definitely yeah. would recommend it. It's a wild ride. And you've also got a kids show. Yes, I also have a kids show that starts on Saturday, and we're going to be doing eight shows for over eight or nine nine days. Yeah, Saturday. Dr. Brown, 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 <laughs> and his singing Tiger with Stuart Bowden. Really great show at the Melbourne Museum at 2.15. Come to that as well. Just as good as my adult show. Yeah, so much going on. Okay, well, yeah. Dr. Brown Paterns is on at the Malt House, the Tower Room, uh, 9.15 most nights, and head to comedyfestival.com.au. Dr. Brown, great Sweet. to meet you. Thank you so much for having me on Triple R. I really support this radio station, and thank you to all the listeners who support it as well. Oh, you guys that's are great. lovely. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.